I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 134. Now that y'all know way too much about us. Oh my gosh. So much. We said no holds barred. Something else that we talked about on that AMA was the pumpkin carving contest. And that is coming up. So if you want to have an entry, because there's going to be five winners randomly drawn. If you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not super creative or... Like, I don't have good carving skills because, I mean, who does besides, like, Hannibal Lecter? Ed Gein. True, Ed Gein. It doesn't matter. It's not, like, based on talent. It's based on, like, oh, you did something that's out of APC, cool, and you put it on the post, cool. We put your name in a drawing, and if we draw it, you win! Yes. And the five winners are going to be drawn Sunday, October 18th, during a Facebook Live. So get to carving. Well, I have binged two things that are not true crime. I guess I'm preparing myself to watch the Chris Watts documentary, so I just want to be in a good mood, I guess. But I watched Emily in Paris. I've been seeing that and want to watch it. It's good. It's by Darren Starr. So it's cute. It's predictable, but it's cute. Also, I had seen this on Netflix, and I was like, hmm. Sounds like something I'd like, but I don't know. And it's got that woman, oh my God, Octavia Spencer. Her. I love her. And it's called Self-Made, Inspired by the Life of Madam C.J. Walker. She's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the first female entrepreneur who became a millionaire. Damn. Yeah, so it's it's really cool. What'd you say it was on? Both of them are on Netflix. Which is where the Chris Watts documentary is as well. So, like, I don't know. I'm not being around you when you watch that. Well, I think I'm going to have, like, a live post going on in the Facebook group. Well, you watch it there and I watch it here and we post together. Okay. Because I know you will be lit. Mm-hmm. You know who else is lit? New Patreoners. Heck yeah. So. <laughs> you normally go up high and I went down low. <laughs> Thank you so much, Christina A. from Vermont. Aaron C. from Virginia. Carrie F. from New Zealand. Shannon O. from Canada. Natasha W. from England. Brooke H. from Arizona. And Sarah W. from Indiana. Thank you all so much for joining Patreon, and you are just in time for all of the extra content that comes along with the 31 Nights of Halloween. So if you want a shout-out and all of the extra bonus content that they're getting, head on over to patreon.com slash theapcpodcast. And be sure to join the Creepinati Facebook because we're doing a lot of Facebook lives over there for the 31 nights of Halloween. Of course, the first thing I thought when you said be sure to was drink your Ovaltine. Oh, Lord. From the Christmas story. Why is it from the Christmas story? That's his code that he breaks with his decoder thing he was waiting on. Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Oh, well, it was actually a commercial. And it's a Christmas story, isn't it? The Christmas story. A, I don't know. I hate that movie, y'all. And I don't know what I did to piss people off, but then they were like, TNT, TBS. It's marathons and marathons of that motherfucking movie. Well, I love it. It is becoming a little much. But becoming? I still, but I still love it. I mean, look, if you want to, as a station, just put a fucking movie on and let everybody go home, go for it. But I do feel like they could decide on a different movie, TBS and TNT. 
I mean, I honestly don't know if they all do it. No, they do. I was just being dramatic because that's who I am, and I hate that freaking movie. You? Dramatic? I know. All right. Are you ready to get into it? Mm Mm-hmm. Teresa B., a.k.a. Creep Mom, she suggested a story. I checked into it, and I was like, oh, my God, absolutely perfect for October because, duh, Creep Mom always knows freaking best. So picture it. February 3rd, 1958. This is the date that everything changed for the Herman family. Like the Munsters? No, but I love them. That is one Nick at Night show that I watched. (laughs) The Herman family consisted of James and Lucille, who were husband and wife, and then they had two children, one boy, James, who was called Jimmy, who was 12, and one girl, Lucille, called Lucy, who was 13. Yes, they named their children after them. They lived at 1648 Redwood Path in Seaford, New York, which is basically a suburb on Long Island. Their neighborhood was what you would expect, modest but nice homes, which adorned quiet tree-lined streets. It was classic leave-it-to-beaver kind of vibes. And February 3rd was just an ordinary day for the family, Until around 3.30 that afternoon when Lucille, the mom, got home in time to greet her kids as they returned from school. They were hanging out a bit, just catching up, but what they didn't know is that within a few minutes, their lives would be forever changed. They all heard something that they described as a popping sound. They kind of dismissed it, but then kept hearing it. And so they went to investigate, and the first place they went was the kitchen. What they found was a bottle of liquid starch in the kitchen that had been opened, an open bottle of bleach in the basement, shampoo bottles, and one medicine bottle in the bathroom that were popped open. But the scariest thing that was mysteriously opened was the bottle of holy water that Lucille had on her bedroom dresser. It was turned on its side and the water was leaking out. And all of these bottles had on screw tops, so they weren't like corks or anything that the pressure could build and they just pop off. Also to note, all of the tops were found several feet away from their respective bottle. Later, Lucy was being interviewed and she was quoted saying, All of a sudden, you'd hear this loud noise like a popping bottle sound, and you'd look around and find a bottle 12 feet away from where it was supposed to be, and all the contents were missing and the bottle was hot to touch. Well, they, of course, freaked the fuck out because, hello. So Lucille called her hubby James and told him about the popping sounds that they heard and the open bottles that they found. And he was basically like, calm your tits. There's got to be a reasonable explanation. I'll look around when I get home later tonight. But don't tell anyone about this. This isn't the type of stuff you broadcast. I mean, those weren't his exact words, but I'm pretty sure I'm not far off. I would be so pissed if Colby said, calm your tits to me. Well, I'm sure he didn't. I was, you know. I don't even know what I would say. But, I mean, if anyone just doesn't take me serious, that's what they're saying to me. Calm your tits. Don't be dramatic. These bottles had screw tops and they were popped off. Riddle me this, James. Like, get your ass home. Well, James did think of some explanations. He said it could be some teenage pranksters, maybe a chemical reaction, or possibly the humidity in the house. But when James arrived home around 7 and he saw that they were screw-top lids, 
he was stunned. Because this whole time, he was thinking like a cork. Because he didn't fucking listen to his wife. Mm-hmm. He's too busy telling her to calm the fuck down. Yeah, and Lucille is a registered nurse. Like, she, she's got her wits about her. You know, it's not... Even if she wasn't. No, I'm, I know, but, like, also, it's not like she's me that believes everything that goes bump in the night is something. Like, she has a, like, a scientific brain. She's more you than me. But even though no one in the family could really explain what had caused the lids to pop off, they just kind of shrugged off the incident and decided to chalk it up to being, quote, just one of those funny little things. Like, how 1950s is that? Right. It's like, where where's the rug that we can sweep this under? Uh-huh. And over the next two days, the family really did believe that it was a rare, once-in-a-lifetime freak accident. But on Thursday, at the same time, 3.30, just as the kids were returning from school, bottles started popping again. Around half a dozen popped this time. Among them was a bottle of nail polish, rubbing alcohol, detergent, another bleach, and liquid starch, all missing their lids. Oh, and another bottle of Holy Water's lid had popped and the bottle was turned sideways again, letting its contents spill out. And also the next night, Friday, Poppin' Bottles was again the showstopper, but this time James started inspecting the bottles more closely, and he deduced that it was Jimmy who was behind all of this. He knew his son loved science, and he decided that Jimmy might have put some carbonated pills in the bottles to scare his sister and his mom. Well, James kept his assumptions to himself, but throughout the weekend, he studied Jimmy very closely. He was set on catching his son in the act. And he would get that chance on Sunday morning, February 9th, which is also my oldest sister Lori's birthday. Several lids popped off bottles again, this time of turpentine, starch, and holy water. But James saw the bottle still kind of shaking and swaying on the shelves, and Jimmy wasn't around. So he was trying to think if Jimmy had snuck past him or something, and so he was getting a bit angry. So he burst through the bathroom door where Jimmy was brushing his teeth, and he accused Jimmy of being guilty of playing these pranks. However, Jimmy screamed that he was innocent and that he would never do that. He wouldn't take it this far. And as Jimmy's pleading his case, as if on cue, a bottle of pectate moved across the top of the sink and fell into the basin of the sink. Then a shampoo bottle slid in the opposite direction and fell on the floor. So it wasn't like that sink top was not leveled or anything mm-hmm. like that. They went opposite directions, everything. James still didn't truly believe Jimmy was innocent, so he checked the bathroom for wires or a hidden cord, and again to see if the countertop was uneven, but he was to no avail. And so James did the only thing he could think to do, call his local police, the Nassau County Police Department. And you can imagine in the 1950s how this went. But luckily, James had a good reputation in the community, so after a lot of explaining and pleading, Lieutenant E. Richardson promised to send someone out to the Herman's residence to investigate. But James had to, you know, swear that he wasn't drunk, that he wasn't, you know, pulling a prank, and, you know, he wasn't doing anything 
illicit or, you know, all of the things. He's like, no, 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 this is true and we need help. Like someone is doing this to us. And the lieutenant did follow through by sending out Officer James Hughes. And you know that officer was like, what the fuck? Why do I have to go on these calls? Mm -hmm. And he was a total skeptic, kind of annoyed. But within minutes, all skepticism flew out the window. There were several bottles in the bathroom that had their lids pop off, and they actually fired directionally at him. And he was like, uh, yeah, y'all need help. Damn. And so that's when Detective Joseph Tazi was assigned to the case. He, again, was skeptical, but didn't want to pass judgment unfairly. So he was leaning that the Hermans were imagining these incidents, but then having that eyewitness account by the officer had kind of threw a wrench in that idea. So on February 11th, Detective Stasi staked out the Hermans' residence. And he didn't have to wait long for proof to be found, because later that night, a perfume bottle was spilled and the perfume seeped into the carpet of Lucy's bedroom. But there was no one in that room at the time to have knocked it over. Over the next few days, and multiple times a day, the lid of the bottle of the holy water in the parents' bedroom had popped off. And during one of these events, because the sound had become so distinctive, James hurried into the room to try to witness it, but he found the bottle on the floor. So he bent down to pick it up, but like Lucy said in her interview, it was strangely hot to the touch. On February 15th, bottles stopped being the only objects being manipulated by this unseen spirit. Jimmy, Lucy, and their cousin Marie Murtha were all watching TV in the living room when all of a sudden a porcelain figurine that was on the end table next to the couch began to rock back and forth a little and then quickly shot two feet into the air before it made a noisy crash landing on the floor. So the kids were shocked, speechless, and they couldn't understand how the figurine had made all that noise like it was broken, but it was still in mint condition. What? I feel like that's all I've said this whole time. What? (laughs) Right? That's all the Hermans have said. That's all the detectives have said. It makes no damn sense. Right. Now that whatever this was seemed to be getting stronger, and Detective Tazi was just as lost as the Hermans, the family decided what they needed was more than earthly help. They needed divine intervention. They were devout Catholics, hence the holy water being in every room, basically, and they contacted Father William McLeod of the Church of St. William the Abbot and explained their issues. Father McLeod came and sprinkled holy water in each room and blessed the house, but the unseen force wasn't budging. They also contacted a bishop to ask for an exorcism, but they were told basically their issues weren't bad enough and like kind of needs to attack you. These aren't really attacking you. It doesn't seem demonic then. So they just had to settle for the holy water and blessing. But whatever this is, allegedly, was knocking over the holy water. So clearly, it's not impacted by holy water. Well, it was knocking over the bottle. Okay, so let's shift gears just for a moment. During the past two weeks, while the Herman family endured their new normal, word started to spread. Local newspapers, radio, and TV all covered the strange happenings. 
And soon there were articles in both Time and Life magazines about this. So it seemed that their noisy ghost was dubbed Popper the Poltergeist. Quite the alliteration. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, because bottles were popping. And it seemed like he wasn't the only one torturing the Herman family anymore. They had reporters on their lawn. They received tons of letters and telephone calls at all hours of the day and night. And somehow the Herman family was chill and they didn't let the strange new popularity and the ill-placed hatred some people had for them deter them from living their best life. They had letters that offered ideas and services to letters that condemned them and blamed them for, quote, inviting these tricks of Satan into their house. And because they didn't turn anyone away, they met a man named Robert Zyder. He was a physicist from Long Island's Brookhaven National Labs. He told the Hermans that he believed there were underground streams below their house and that might be creating some weird magnetic field. He had brought with him dousing rods and he was going to search with them to find the water. Well, Detective Tazi added this information to his growing case file on Popper the Poltergeist. And he had been doing a lot of research. Some other things he did was that he checked with the Air Force and studied their flight plans, thinking that maybe their jets would have created sonic booms and that would have caused this phenomena. Phenomena. But they burst his bubble and said their sonic booms or anything like that couldn't have caused those disturbances. Another hypothesis he had was radio waves, but that was ruled out when he contacted the Radio Corporation of America. Then the Long Island Lighting Company came out and did a test to see if there were any underground vibrations, but they didn't detect any. Building inspectors confirmed the house was structurally sound. Detective Tazi even had the fire department inspect a well on the property to see if changes in the water level could be causing any of the disturbances. However, they found that it had been stable for at least five years. And all the while, shit was still going wackadoo at the Herman house. Once, when Detective Tazi was walking down the basement stairs with Jimmy, a bronze statue of a horse that weighed a lot, like over 70 pounds, shit, flew across the basement and hit Tazi in the leg. Can you say workman's comp? I got ran over by a horse. But you're a detective. It was a bronze horse. <laughs> it was a Mustang. God. Like the car? No, a bronze horse. <laughs> but everyone thought they found the solution to their problem when they opened a letter from a woman named Helen Connolly from Massachusetts. She had wrote in the letter that she also believed her house was haunted, For a while, there were some odd things going on in her living room, like her chairs, other furniture moved, but, you know, she tried to debunk it, and she ended up doing just that. Instead of having a ghost, she had a heavy downdraft through her fireplace, and so she capped it with a rotary metal turbine, and everything stopped. So, of course, the Hermans had one installed immediately, but the activity didn't stop. As soon as the turbine was in place, a porcelain figurine launched itself from the table and smashed itself against a desk. And so, like, it was more than 12 feet, 
and it smashed so hard into the desk that it left a dent on the wood. Damn. And so that was just like a fuck you from Popper, you know? Like, yeah. Uh-huh. You thought that was it, but no, I'm real, motherfucker. And then more things continued to happen. A bottle of ink popped its screw cap. Then it flew through the air, crashed on the wall. I mean, all these bottles popping is one thing, but don't fucking make a mess. Right? Well, and a lot of them, when they popped, they did make messes. That's what I'm saying. Don't make a fucking mess. Yeah. Well, there was a time a sugar bowl flew off the table, and Detective Tazi was a witness to that. And finally, the Herman family just needed a break, so they spent a night with a relative. While they were gone, Detective Tazi stayed in the house, but nothing else happened that night. But the next day, when the Hermans returned, that sugar bowl flew again from the table, but this time it shattered into pieces. Once, while Jimmy was in his room doing his homework, his record player was lifted off the ground and moved at least 15 feet across the room. Then there was a small statue of the Virgin Mary, and it flew more than 12 feet. And when it landed, it crashed into a mirror frame in the master bedroom. Oh, my God. Then there was a bookcase that was filled with encyclopedias, which you know is Carrie's dream. That was turned over. Jimmy's room had this world globe, and it just randomly flew down the hallway and almost hit Detective Tazi. Once there was a newspaper photographer there named John Gold, and he was from the London Evening News. Well, while he was there, he witnessed his flashbulbs lift off of a table and fly through the air and crash against a wall. I don't know why this thing's got to destroy expensive stuff now. I know. And this is something that's not theirs. Right. And then Popper began knocking on the walls. So there was no silence ever. That is my biggest, like, nightmare. I need silence. That's a lot coming from me. No, you don't like background noise. You want talking. Mm Mm-hmm. So you want it silent unless people are talking. Yeah. I want communication, not... Like television, (laughs) yeah, not television in the background and not the radio on. And like, you trying to talk to me with the radio on? I'm like, do I know this song? Oh, those lyrics. I love those. Wait, what are you saying? Oh my god! Like, I mm -mm. nope. About this same time, there were some scientists at the parapsychology lab at Duke University in North Carolina, and they became interested after they read about the Herman House in some news articles. Dr. J.B. Ryan was the head of this group, and they were all busy compiling a lot of evidence that supported their idea that certain people under the right circumstances had the power to influence the behavior of objects without touching them. They called it psychokinesis, or PK. So they're reading all about the Herman House, and they're like, um, okay, this this sounds interesting. This is more evidence. We need to get some evidence from this. So Dr. Ryan sent his assistant, Dr. J. Gaither Pratt, to New York and to stay at the Herman House. And he arrived February 26th. Soon after they got there, an incident occurred when Jimmy and Lucy were in bed and the parents were awake. James heard a commotion in Jimmy's room, so he ran quickly to it. And he saw that Jimmy's nightstand that had three drawers was flipped over. 
The brass lamp that was originally on top of the nightstand had fallen as well, duh, and the glass globe was broken. However, the light bulb inside wasn't. How the fuck does that happen? Girl, who knows? And while the scientists were there, Popper was quiet. But on March 2nd, Popper popped back up. Popped its popperly little head? Yep. <laughs> and all of the Hermans were in the house when this took place. The first thing that happened was a dish vaulted from a kitchen cabinet and shattered on the floor. Then a bowl of flowers slid down the dining room table, basically jumped into the air, and then crashed on the floor. And then on March 10th, while James Herman was away on business, Lucille, Jimmy, and Lucy were all getting ready for bed. And the scientists that were there, they suddenly heard a loud popping sound in the cellar. So they hurried downstairs to see what it was. They found a bleach bottle sitting in a cardboard box, somehow had lost its plastic lid, and it was, like, in the middle of the floor. And so it was, like, okay, they were all doing their nightly routine. We were here. Like, you know, everyone was accounted for. No one was in the basement. And so they could not explain it. And something else no one can explain that was the last of Popper. Ever? Ever. What the fuck? Yeah. Well, the scientists, they interviewed everyone in the Herman family, and they tried to, you know, explain the incidents with a natural explanation. And so they thought maybe some unknown pressure was causing the bottles to pop their tops. So they decided to do, you know, a little science experiment, and they purchased dry ice and placed it in a container with screw tops. However, the gases built up, escaped, but didn't force the caps off. The only thing they succeeded in was exploding a bottle made of thin glass, but the cap remained screwed to the neck, so it didn't fit with what was going on. So the activity started when the dad was at work and then ended when he was out of town. Yep. Mm hmm. So what Pratt, one of the scientists, believed is that someone in the house was causing these incidents to occur, but they were unknowingly causing them. It had to be one of those three, the mom or the two kids. True. Well, of course, we all know that they say usually a girl because we've all heard that poltergeist, there's usually teenagers involved in the household and all of their energy could cause it. Usually it's a girl because uh, we going through changes. Very angsty. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, they believed that it was Jimmy, not Lucy, who was causing these incidents. Because he was near or at the scene like 70% of the time. A lot of the times he was the sole witness. But Detective Tazi had, like, you know, been with him sometimes where shit had happened, you know, and he's like, he wasn't doing it maliciously. Like, there's no way he could have thrown that horse at me. He was walking down the stairs with me, and it flew across the room at me. Mm -hmm. And it was too heavy to be, like, on an invisible string. All in all, 
Popper made his appearance for five weeks and 67 individual incidents occurred. All of them were reported to the police. 40 times the same 16 objects were involved. So it wasn't just random per se. And a lot of times it was the holy water and the Virgin Mary. And they say that poltergeist do target religious objects. But 23 of the object occurrences were bottle poppings. And so obviously that's where Popper got his name. And throughout the years, scientists at Duke still study this, trying to figure out an explanation, and they can't. The Hermans moved away just to get out of the house. Even though it was quiet, it was still like, you know, we don't want to be associated with this anymore. But something that is associated with this is this loosely inspired Poltergeist, the movie. Also, something to note, I don't know why I didn't write this down the mile, but it was like seven miles away from Amityville. Hmm. Yeah. And so some people said that like the Native American chief that they believe haunts Amityville house also like... Could have been Popper because they're so close and they did happen, like, I think within 10 years of each other. I don't know. That's another case I want to cover. But that is Popper the Poltergeist. I don't like this story. It doesn't have a fucking, like, there's no closure. Oh, yeah. Like your unsolved murder last week. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. It just fucking stopped. Yep. I mean, how do you sell a house where you're like, okay, by the by, there was some activity. Yeah, I don't know. And it's fucking famous. Right? Oh, my gosh. Could you imagine if they didn't disclose that? It's pretty interesting that it became that big that quickly. Because when you were saying the dates, I was like, damn, that's only like two weeks. And they've got like the London Times there. How mm-hmm. in the fuck? Yeah, because it was. It was like the first case of like a haunting to be really publicized on TV and stuff like that. So hopefully yours has an ending. Well, it technically does. Well, mine technically does. It doesn't. It just stopped. (laughs) No, it has an ending. (laughs) It has a period. Okay. We're going to talk about two different families and how they connect. The first family we're going to talk about is the DiMaggio family. More specifically, the patriarch who went by Jimbo and his son, James, who went by Jim. There is a daughter in there. She kind of comes up later, but we're going to focus on these two. Jimbo had a sordid past. In July of 89, he had gone over to his ex-girlfriend's house, and this all took place in El Cajon, California. So he goes into this ex-girlfriend's house, and he is wearing a stocking mask and has a sawed-off shotgun, When he gets there, his ex-girlfriend isn't there. But her 16-year-old daughter is. Oh, fuck. She's also there with her boyfriend. So he takes the boyfriend, handcuffs him to the bed, and when he's trying to, I don't know if he was trying to rape her. Honestly, I'm not really sure exactly what happened. All I do know is that he had become infatuated with the ex-girlfriend's 16-year-old daughter. Wow. Well, 
she is very smart and was like, okay, okay, but I got to use the bathroom. And she escaped and went for help. Well, if he had become infatuated with the 16-year-old, was he going over there for the mom or the daughter? Unsure. Probably the daughter, though. Wow. She escaped, went and got help, and he was arrested for attempted kidnapping. He ended up being sentenced to two years in prison, but while he was awaiting sentencing for that, he broke into a motel room of his friend Cynthia Marie Bryant and Aaron DeBoard, and he beat them with a baseball bat. Fuck. So they were all three doing crystal meth, and they said that he just blipped. Like, just, it was like a light bulb switch, and he lost it and started like attacking them, like came back and attacked them. And Aaron got the brunt of it. And then he fled the scene in the car and of course was arrested. And he was only sentenced to three months in prison for that. Wow. I mean, like brutally assaulted these two and then just gets like, no, three months in jail. On drugs. Mm Mm-hmm. But then does he get charged the two years? Yes. So when he finally goes to trial for the assault in the motel room, he was already serving his two years for the attempted kidnapping. After he gets out of prison, I mean, he's poor. It's hard to find a job. And so he actually dies by suicide by taking like a hot shot of meth and kind of just going out into the desert to die Mm, gosh that brings us to jimbo's son jim jim tried everything he could to get out from under his father's shadow because he didn't want to be associated with his dad who attacked a 16 year old and you know was on drugs and assaulted people in a motel room you know he just was like This is not who I am. This is not who I want to be associated with. And so he did his best to live this life that was polar opposite of his father. Jim lived alone, and he had this kind of like a cabin in the woods, but it really wasn't. He just had like a bunch of land and this cabin-type house, and he had built a life for himself. He became really good friends with the Anderson family. Brent Anderson is the father of the family, and he and Jim were best friends. Brett and his wife, Christina, had gone through a bit of a rough patch. Brett wasn't working, and Christina was having to provide for everyone. Money was really tight, and so they ended up separating. Brett moved to Nashville for a job because he couldn't find any work in California, So he asked his best friend, Jim, just to keep an eye on the family. You know, he's like, look, you got to be my eyes and my ears because I'm halfway across the country in Nashville. Like, please just take care of my family. Make sure that they get everything they need that, you know, do the things that he can't do because he's not there. And Jim was that for the Andersons. He was a part of the family. The kids, 16-year-old Hannah and 8-year-old Ethan, called him Uncle Jim. Like, he was part of the family. They would often have cookouts and stuff at Jim's house because, again, he had all this land where they could, you know, do outside shit, whatever the fuck that is. Jim would even, like, pick up the kids from school if they had cheerleading practice or all the different after-school activities. He would even pick them up and take them home. 
one day Hannah was at cheerleading practice and she texts Jim the address of where her cheerleading practice is. He picks her up and they're headed back to his house. And it was about an hour drive from her cheerleading practice. An hour drive? Yeah. Well, they're in California. Never mind. That's normal. They're heading back to his house because they were going to have one last big family blowout at his house. Jim, much like Brett, fell on hard times financially. And I mean, because also it's the summer of 2013. And I feel like that that was a kind of a, a time when a lot of people in the States were going through some financial difficulty. And his house was being foreclosed. So he was going to have to move and figure out where to go from there. So who better to have kind of like a going away with than the Andersons who understand exactly what he's going through and are as close to him as family. So he picks up Hannah at cheerleading. They're driving back to his house. When they get to his house, Hannah's like, where the hell are mom and Ethan? And she's like, something's weird. Like something's up. And Jim takes her to the couch and she realizes he has handcuffs. Oh my gosh. He sits her down on the couch, handcuffs her, and zip ties her feet. What the hell? She realizes that she could hear Ethan. <gasps> she could hear him yelling upstairs, but he was gagged. And so again, she's like, this is really fucking bad. Like, what is going on? This is my Uncle Jim. Like, what the fuck is happening? Then he makes her play Russian roulette with him. Oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. He held the gun to his head, pulled the trigger, nothing happened. And then when he handed her the gun to do it, she cried and was like, please, please don't make me do this. I don't want to do this. And so he eventually didn't make her do it. After she had been there for a little while, she told Jim that she had a headache and he gave her what he said was Tylenol. And then she passed out. Yes. Because turns out it's Ambien. Oh, shit. So she really passed out. She might have gotten up and eaten some snacks, but I think she passed out. I was about to say, he should have not given her Ambien. Has he not heard our stories? I feel like of all the sleep aids, Ambien, probably not your best choice, Jim. Right? But of course, she took it because even though he's got her handcuffed and zip tied and she hears Ethan upstairs, she's going to take it because... She still trusts him. It's still mm -hmm. this bond that she's had for whole, her whole life. I mean, he, Jim and Brett became friends when her mom was like six months pregnant with her. So she has literally known him her whole life. And he didn't make her play Russian roulette. Right. You know, so it's like, okay, well, he didn't make me do that. So maybe, maybe it's okay. The next thing that Hannah knows is that she wakes up and she and Jim are in Idaho. What? Yes. While she was sleeping, they had been on quite the car journey. They had gone through an immigration checkpoint because they were so close to the border. And the immigration officer just let them through because it looked like a father and his daughter and she was just sleeping on the ride, you know. So the immigration officer thought nothing of it and just 
let him go through this checkpoint. So while all that is happening, police and firefighters get a call because there is this house that is on fire and like bad on fire. When they get there, it's Jim's house and it is engulfed in flames. What the Josh Powell's going on here? The garage is caught on fire and as they get it put out, they are shocked to find a female body. What about Ethan? Just to go ahead and get this out of the way, obviously they realized that it was Christina Anderson and that she had been struck 12 times in the head, at least. Her right arm and both legs were fractured. Fuck. And she had a cut on her neck. She was bound with plastic, like zip ties, and had duct tape wrapped around her neck and mouth. The police ended up finding Ethan's body, and he was burned beyond recognition. They weren't even able to establish a cause of death because he was burned so badly. Oh my gosh. The more they're looking, I mean, obviously this is before they got the autopsy results because they're just doing their inspections. They realized that all of this was rigged up to catch on fire. This was not someone just willy-nilly pouring gasoline and lighting a match. No, whoever it was created incendiary devices. They had torn up pieces of paper with, like, gunpowder, and it was time to catch fire 24 hours after Jim left with Hannah. So it gave them a 24-hour head start. That motherfucker. Yes. Are you seeing the connections between him and his father now? Uh Mm Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Police, again, like I said, finally realized that, okay, this is Christina and Ethan, but they have a daughter. Where the fuck is Hannah? And so they're putting this together now, and they issue an Amber Alert for Hannah. I heard this on one of the YouTube videos I watched, but I didn't find this in any of the other articles that I read. But that this was the first time California had used the Amber Alert. Oh, wow. So I'm not 100% sure, but here we are. When they issued the Amber Alert, some border agents go, wait, 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 wait. We saw them in his blue Nissan going that way. Yeah. So while they're trying to figure out where the fuck are they going, they start interviewing all the people close to them. They find out that Hannah had told some friends that he creeped her out a little bit. And this was something that was kind of new. She didn't tell her parents because she didn't want to disrupt that friendship. Because again, with her dad working out of state, Jim was basically her mother's rock and who she relied on as essentially a spouse to help with picking the kids up and all of that. One of Hannah's friends told the FBI that Jim had told Hannah If you were older, I would date you. Uh, what? And that made her, obviously, very uncomfortable. Yeah. Police did some more digging, and they find some text messages between Hannah and Jim. And so, they look into it, but all the text messages were innocent. Like, it was all like, hey, this is where I'll be for cheerleading practice. Pick me up here. Here's the address. You know, yada, yada, yada. They found handcuffs. And different restraints and just all these things indicating like, okay, like Hannah was taken against her will. I wonder if he took pictures of her, not in like sexual things, obviously, because they weren't having that. 
but like creepy, like Josh Powell's dad did mm-hmm. of Susan Powell. Like, yeah, you know what I mean. We talked about this case again tonight. Look, if y'all have not listened to that podcast, Cold, you need to go listen to it because it is fucking good. It really is. But like, that's what I think about. I don't know why because I don't trust anyone, and so it's like. You're always on your phone. Mm-hmm. So you never know if someone's taking a picture unless they're me and they don't know how to turn off their flash. Then you know. And I'm like, okay, sorry. I mean, I take pictures of Donna all the fucking time. All the time. All them. the time. But I'm like, oh, she playing Candy Crush. No, no. she's She caught me doing stupid shit. <laughs> and then how do I know? Because she sends it to Tiffany in our group text. And I'm like, motherfucker, when did you? T-? Oh, you took it then. I thought you were on leveling up on Candy Crush. I am not paparazzi like Carrie is. Like, I look awkward as fuck trying to sneak a picture. I don't know. I hope he didn't. I mean, I'm sure he had, like, pictures of her. Like, if especially if he went to games where she was cheerleading and yeah. stuff like that. Well, remember how I said how things were, you know, on fire? Not all of the buildings that were set to catch on fire did. And so in one area that never caught on fire is where he had all of the boxes and receipts and all of that from all of the equipment that he bought to kidnap them and to basically torture Christina and Ethan. Why did he keep the receipts? Well, because he was, they were put to be part of what burned. I don't care. I'm just saying. I That's dumb. What you going to do? Write it off on your taxes? I don't keep receipts from the fast food places. I put it in my bag and then it goes away. I mean, you can't keep the evidence. Exactly. No one knows. Police start going through his computer, and they found emails that he had written to Hannah that talked about basically that he was fearful that she was growing up and growing away from him as, like, Uncle Jim. The emails were almost as if he thought that as she got older, she would fall in love with him, and that maybe if he, like, took her away, she would fall in love with him. I I mean, I don't know. In all of his receipts that he kept that the police found, they found one showing that he had bought some camping gear and a a large blue tent. While police are doing all of this investigating, meanwhile, Hannah and Jim have made it all the way to Idaho, and they parked his car in an area called the River of No Return. This area is all wilderness. It's rough terrain. It's hilly it's slopey it's slippy it's all the things and he made hannah after he parked his car hide it in the brush put branches and shit over it he took the license plate off and he had those big backpacks and hannah had to carry her backpack a bunch of his stuff like the tent and all and his cat because you know oh i don't know if i want to tell this but he killed their dog, too. How are you going to leave that out? I forgot until I just remembered that he had his cat. So he- you going to kill their motherfucking dog, but you going to take your cat? Uh-huh. That's some fucking bullshit. Okay, well, here's the thing. Not only was she carrying way more than her load, they weren't fucking dressed for this. She had on little bitty sneakers, fucking pajamas, like nothing that anybody should be wearing, traipsing through the fucking wilderness... You know, going down these hills, like sliding, like it would be really muddy and you'd slide down. And also, they didn't have enough food. He basically brought trail mix. Like, like that's it. What the Hansel and Gretel's going on? It's really bad. So, I mean, obviously it's all really bad. But 
aside from the fact that she just bless her heart she's fucking kidnapped now she's going through again wilderness not the right clothes has no fucking food and is carrying all his shit while they're walking around they come up on a group of horseback riders that are just out like doing their thing two couples and he asks the riders directions to somewhere and they're like, whoa, he's going completely the wrong way. And they kind of point him which way to go. And at first, when the horseback riders noticed them, they thought it was like a boyfriend and girlfriend, like, you know, just kind of out in the woods doing their thing. But then the closer they got up on him, they realized, no, 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 he's like way older than her. And they have a cat. <laughs> yes. And they're not dressed well enough. And this girl is weird, acting weird, you know? Yeah. But, of course, he's like, if you fucking say anything, I will kill everyone, you know? Yeah. And so, she's not going to say anything, but also, like, there's no way she can act normal. Yeah. When the group of horseback riders get back to camp, they're like, this was, that was weird. Like, th- something about that just didn't sit right. Like, that ain't right. They couldn't put their finger on it, but they were like, it just wasn't right. Then they see the Amber Alert, and they go, holy fuck, that was her. So they immediately call law enforcement, and the FBI just fucking, like, ants on an anthill into Idaho. They find the blue Nissan covered up in all the brush, and it was right along kind of that trail where the horseback riders said. They questioned people who were coming from the trail, And stopped people from, you know, going in. The last person that came off the trail when they questioned them, and keep in mind, this is August the 9th. So at this point, they had been in the woods for five days. He says that he saw a man and a teenage girl, and they were up camping in the mountains at Moorhead Lake. So the U.S. Marshals get a plane, and they're like, okay, We're just going to over the area. We know they have a blue tent. We're going to just look for a fucking blue tent. And they go around and go around and go around and they don't fucking see him. And so they're like, fuck, I guess guess we we can't find him, you know? And they're about to quit. And one of the marshals says, let's just do it one more time. Let's just make one more pass. And the fucking sunlight hits it just right and they see the blue tent. Once they get a good focus on the tent, they see two people. So the FBI marshals, they all get this rescue team in place. And while they're getting ready to make their move, they see Hannah waving her arms in the sky, like signaling. She's waving like a white handkerchief. It was like she was trying to draw attention to Jim because he's off collecting firewood. Well, the logistics of what happens next is not really clear. Allegedly... Hannah tells Jim that she read in a book one time that the way to signal for help when you have a gun is to shoot it in the air three times, and that stands for SOS. And so he shoots a gun in the air one time, and as he's lowering it, the rescue team opens fire on Jim and shoots him with five shots, killing him instantly. And they rescue Hannah. Why would he be signaling for help? That's where I'm kind of confused. Because it's like, 
I, I mean, surely they heard the helicopter above them. Like, yeah. they, I feel like they knew they were they were closing in on them. Yeah. And so, I don't really know. But keep that in mind. Yeah. You'd think that the story kind of ended there, though. She's rescued. She's reunited with her father. I mean, obviously, she's distraught about her brother and her mother. But not long after she's reunited with her father... Some people on social media start questioning her relationship with Jim and wondering if it was more mutual than one-sided. And was she, in fact, involved? Now, I just want to say that some of this stuff is controversial and just know we are not victim-blaming at all. Just telling the whole story of what both sides... And I want to be clear that law enforcement has cleared Hannah of any wrongdoing. Like, as far as law enforcement is concerned, like, there was clear evidence that she was taken with handcuffs and that she was not a willing participant. You know, it's it's fully believed that she had no idea what was going to happen to her family. When they executed the search warrant on the remaining parts of, of Jim's house that hadn't been burned... They did find letters. More specifically, they found a letter. Now, some reports say that when the search warrants were made public, they found letters that Hannah had written him. But police were like, no, we found a letter. And she was asking her Uncle Jim boy advice. Like, it was a completely innocent letter that a teenager would write an uncle you know because you know teenagers write letters right so police were like it was totally innocent and it was one letter not multiple letters that people made it sound like well here's my thing about that i'm a letter writer but i feel like if i'm just asking advice from my uncle that is not sketchy at all it would just be over text or a phone call or like Let's go have dinner or something, not in a letter. I'm not saying that it wasn't that. I'm just saying that's odd as fuck. Well, the phone records show that within the hour or so before he, like, picked her up, there was more than a dozen phone calls between them. Now, could it have been, hey, Uncle Jim, practice is running a little late. See you in a minute. Hey, you know what I mean? Could have it been that? Yes. Mm-hmm. But it's also 2013 and they text. So that's weird too. But if it's an hour drive, it could have been like, hey, do you want me to pick up something to eat? Or, you know what I mean? Like, I. Over a dozen times though. Well, how many times do we go, hey, and you hang up before I'm finished? Well, my question is though, if she was at, if she was at cheerleading practice, True. how is she making all those calls? True. True. But there's nothing that has said that, like, she skipped cheerleading practice or anything like that. Like, I'm not saying that she wasn't at cheerleading practice. My question is, how did she make so many calls during it? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, the next thing that made people kind of go, hmm, was that she started posting on social media, like, hours after she was reunited with her father. She started answering questions There was a website called Ask Something. I don't know why it's not in my freaking notes. I swear to God, I just saw it. Where people would like ask questions and she would answer them like, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite pop star? 
And she would answer questions like that, but she would also answer questions about the kidnapping. She posted a lot of pictures of her just smiling and like not pictures that you would expect from someone who had just been, which again, we're not victim blaming and everyone handles things differently. And for God's sake, she's 16. You know, there's no, you can't imagine how you would process something like this, much less at 16 years old. Yeah. But she's posted a lot of like smiling pictures, like nothing happened. And at her mother and brother's memorial service, like she walks in with like a Starbucks cup in her hand and it's just like, like she looks like she just got to a party being like, oh my God, hey, like hugging people. Like it, she really looks like she just walked into a party. Well, like you said, though, she could have just detached herself from that whole situation. Absolutely. But also with the social media stuff, I think you're right. She's 16. She's trying not to be the girl whose mom and brother were murdered. Right. And she was kidnapped. Right. So like, hey, everything's good. I'm fine. Let's not talk about that. Ask.fm was the was the thing. Of course, I just found it after I talked about it. The other thing, Hannah, even after she told her friend that he said that about if you were older, I would date you. She went on multiple like day trips to Malibu, to Hollywood with him, like just them. Some things said overnight trips, but I, I, I don't think that's right. I think it's just, they were just day trips. I, I don't know if she was involved. It's not for me to say. We don't know what police found, and police say that she's innocent. So I'm going to go with that. But the SOS thing was weird. And if she saw it all crashing and burning, if she was involved, allegedly, I could see how she could she would be able to say, hey, why don't you send up an SOS? Knowing damn good and well, if it was going to go out in a blaze of glory and he dies, she'll be able to play like she didn't know. You know, like if she really was kind of this mastermind behind it that was, you know, having him do her bidding. Like, okay, well, Dad's in Nashville. If we can get rid of Mom and Ethan, we can be together kind of thing. I, I don't know. I, it's like I can I can see it because it's almost like a fucking Lifetime movie where I can see how it could go with her being the mastermind. But on the other hand, I, I just don't know. No, I agree. But what I, th- what I think is that she wasn't the mastermind. I think she was involved in the extent of like a crush on him or mm-hmm. like, you know, whatever. At first she was creeped out, but then it's like, oh, he's older. He's into me. You know, whatever. Right. Like, it's just a thing. Someone likes you and you're like, ew, but oh, he likes me. It's so, so true. Yeah. And so then it's like, oh, okay. I get to do this grown up stuff with him. Okay. Whatever. But I don't think she was involved. Like, she didn't know that he was going to take it to that extreme to be like, okay, so we got to kill your family for us to be together because mm-hmm. I feel like if she was a mastermind behind it, she wouldn't be the one carrying all the shit and his cad. Or was she really? Did she just say that? Ooh, but did no one see her? No. Oh. Ooh. I don't know. But I, I don't see her being the mastermind. But I do see what you're saying. Like, I do think that even if she wasn't involved in it, again, in a way that, she got him to kill her family, like her brother and her mom. She knew it was wrong to be involved with him. And maybe in her 16-year-old brain, 
oh, if he says we're involved, I'll be guilty too. Yeah. And so, hey, I got to get him out of the picture so everything's cool. Well, Jim's sister, Laura, actually sued some of the FBI agents for, like, wrongfully killing him. I don't think anything came of it. Like, I don't even think it was settled out of court as far as I could find. All I could find was that she was suing them. I mean, he shot up in the air, and if they had a helicopter... He could have been shooting at the helicopter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, I mean, there's... Yeah, there's no case there. Hannah's dad moved back to California, and they were living together. She was finishing out school, doing the best that she could. Again, I just want to reiterate, police have proven that she was not involved. But you want to know what the weird thing is? Jim died 18 years to the day that his father died by suicide. Wow. Is that not so bizarre? Whoa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And both of them had some sort of infatuation slash kidnapping thing happening with a 16-year-old. Mm-hmm. And both that they were close to it. wasn't just a random 16-year-old. Right. I almost said at the beginning when you said he tried so hard to be different than his dad. Mm-hmm. Like when you try so hard and you go the complete opposite way, you end up right where you didn't want to be, mm-hmm. no matter what. Like, you can't be an extreme of anything. anything. I just want to reiterate again, I feel like I've said that word a billion times you today. Have. But I just want to make it clear, we are not victim-blaming Hannah. We are just talking out the evidence and talking out the rumors and, you know, just trying to present everything. I mean, she went through this traumatic thing. Yeah. And so to go through this and... I mean, she was kidnapped. Her mother and her brother were brutally murdered. Bodies burned, Mm. you know. And even, fuck, the fucking family dog, too. Like, I mean, she went through this horrible. She was for six days in the woods, cold and hungry. And, I mean, she was essentially starving. I mean, she was in a bad place. I don't want to diminish that. Oh, for sure. And I don't want to make it seem like we're blaming her or... We're saying that, oh, she was definitely involved. I just want to point out ways where I can see how people think that. Because it, it really does play out like a Lifetime movie mm-hmm. if she was involved. Yeah. But she wasn't. Allegedly. Yeah. Well, And see, this is what I don't like. Is because I just want to be like, girl, if you were involved with him, it'll never come out. But it's like, just be like, yeah. like You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because, it, again, you didn't. Even if you were involved with him... It's not on you. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, was it wrong or whatever? Sure. But, like, But she's 16. It was wrong on his part. Oh, for sure. But, like, you didn't cause him to kill your family. Exactly. There's no... Even if, like you said, even if they did have a relationship, there is literally not a shred of evidence that shows that she was even in the planning of anything. Yeah. Like... That was all him. Yes. Yeah, so that's why I'm like, we aren't victim-blaming because she has, like, again, even if she was with him, I don't think she has anything to do with that. Because I just don't see her as being that person. I feel like they would be killed a different way if she was involved with killing her family, like her mother and her brother. And also, why leave the dad alive? I mean, I know he's, like, in another state, 
And I don't know if maybe he thought he was going to get the insurance from the house burning. I don't I don't know. I don't know. Or if he was just like, fuck it, I'm going to lose it every- anyway. Let's just burn the bitch down, you know? I mean, evidently he didn't plan it through. Well, but that's the thing. He did. But he didn't plan it well. He, But like, I mean, the, the, the connections and the way that he did the devices to catch on fire and the time delay and all of that, I mean, it didn't, like you said, it didn't follow through. But conceptually, it was there. He spent a lot of fucking time on this. Like, he planned this. Yeah, he planned it. He's just not a good planner. Don't hire him. Right. He did. He did. But you're right. He's not a good planner because, I mean, obviously, all the fires didn't start. And then he goes off into this wilderness and... With his cat. While he bought camping gear, tents, all that shit, he didn't fucking bring food. Mm Mm-hmm. Or they didn't have the right clothes either. Diotlaw Pass, motherfucker. Did you not read that? No. It's a Google search. Mm, if anyone was going to be sued for anything, and I, again, I don't know. I don't know law stuff. I don't pretend to be a lawyer on this show. I'm not Elle Woods. But uh, I feel like mm, she's 16, so they should have woke her up at the border check because it's not like she would, you know, be like a newborn. If you wake the newborn up, like, oh, my God, it's a baby. It's going to be crying the whole time. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. You know what I mean? And the baby can't talk anyway. So it's not like you can be like, gaga, goo, 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 papa. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, that's your dad. This girl is clearly old enough to be like, yes or no. And she might have lied. But at least it would have been that, not, oh, she asleep. You don't know if she's asleep, passed out. Whatever. True. That and the cat, those are the two things that I'm just like, mm, he should have woke her up because she's 16. Like, wake up. I, again, I don't know the age because, again, kids. But it's not like, oh, my God. But there also wasn't an Amber Alert at this point. I feel like it doesn't matter because she's asleep. Like, you don't know if she's asleep or drugged. And she was both. I don't know. I don't know what the answer for that is. Because also, can they wake every single person up that drives, you know? I mean, why shouldn't they? I don't know. I don't know. So I can have someone dead in the passenger and be like, he asleep. Don't worry about it. Fucking weekend at Birdie's. I don't know. I, right? So, like, I mean, if this is the case, hold on. Who was that Border Patrol? I don't know. You Look, I know that people who are way smarter than us listen to this podcast. So, uh, y'all tell us what the answer is with that. Yes, please. But also, both of our cases were very, like, you could have very strong opinions on either. So we want to know what y'all think. Was it a poltergeist? Was it because of the people? Was it because of the house? Why the fuck did it just stop? Same thing with this. Do you think that Hannah was involved at all? Or do we even want to discuss that? Because let this girl move on with her life, you know? Yeah. Y'all just tell us what y'all think, because y'all know we love to hear it. Well, also, I don't even have an opinion on this. But, you know, God, what was that case? Or was, <laughs> oh, my God. You know what? This is when you don't know if you, like, you watch too much true crime, but also too much fictional crime. So I don't know if it was a real case or not a real case, but the murder gene. I think it was on Apple that proved or whatever. Yeah, probably. But, but, you know, like, since he tried to not be his dad, but ended up doing what his dad did in a sense. Oh, I also forgot to mention this. You might remind me of because of like dad stuff. 
Okay, so all of Jim's estate, it was it was like $15,000. Instead of going to his mother, went to Hannah and Ethan. Which, of course, Ethan's dead, goes to Hannah. So Jim's sister is like, this is so weird. Like, this is not like him. This is so out of character. They're like, instead of contesting where his money went... They said, okay, we won't contest it, but we want a DNA test on Hannah because they thought that maybe Hannah was his daughter and not, it wasn't mm. like a love affair. It was, no, that's his daughter. Mm. So they did DNA tests on Hannah and Ethan because they had some of Ethan's stuff and Brett is their father. And I'm sorry, are we the uh, Mari show right yes. now? <laughs> But that's why earlier I said, and I forgot to circle back to it, of they met when she was six months pregnant. So it wasn't like, mm. oh, they were all friends and then, oops, she got pregnant. You know? Yeah. There's a lot happening in, yes, in both of I'm, these cases. I am like, and look, ooh. I could not find any other podcast. I found some stuff on, well, okay, actually, they made a Lifetime movie about it. What was it called? It's called Kidnapped, the Hannah Anderson Story. I, really, the part about him dying 18 years to the day that his father did. Yeah, that, oh, there's so many things that I'm just like, it's such a coincidence that it can't be a coincidence. But, but it, it is. is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? We got to end on that note, y'all. <laughs> Thank y'all so much for supporting us and listening. We hope y'all are just having a blast this October because we are really carry a blast. Maybe a McFlurry. <laughs> Damn. We got to go. We love y'all. Remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get, get scared. scared.